You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Hosea chapter 9, probably the hardest chapter in Hosea. We're almost there, five more weeks of Hosea, but in this one, things come to a head. And we see some declarations of justice, and we see God's holiness on display in this chapter. We see the gap between God and man on display in this chapter. Indeed, we even see the wrath of God fairly loudly in this passage, and it's been my labor all week in prayer just to, like, Lord, take us from this place where you bring us low and show us some true things and, and show us where to land And of course, the place that I want us to land this morning, like every morning that I preach at Mercy's Door, is uh, is at the foot of the cross, is in the presence of Christ to see how he stepped into bleak spaces like we're going to see this morning in Hosea chapter 9 to shine light into darkness. And that's what I want for you this morning. Let's jump right into it. In Hosea chapter 9, verses 1 through 9 are really just more outlining of the punishments of Israel. We've been a few chapters in on this, haven't we? And the verses 1 through 3, I think, kind of really focus in on the nature of their rebellion, on uh, some of the spiritual adultery that we've been talking about over the last several weeks that are kind of symbolized in this particular passage by Canaan's grain and by their wine and by their wealth. We see outlined in Hosea 9, 1 through 3, a blatant refusal of Israel to rejoice in the presence of their God. They're engaging in what is called here spiritual adultery or whoredom as they chase after material wealth, as they chase after and fixate on the Canaanite gods and all that they offer, the the grain and the wine and the oil, a symbol of worldly prosperity. And I, I want us to see ourselves in it. Let's read it. Rejoice not, Hosea writes, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you've played the whore forsaking your God. You've loved a prostitute's wage on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. In Assyria. We see here in that failure to rejoice in the Lord himself is akin to, to spiritual adultery. It is in itself a rebellion to take the good gifts of our God and to make them our God, to rejoice in the gifts and not the giver. Now, in this case, that's not all they're doing. What they're doing is they're crediting the abundance that God has given to them in this land that he promised, the land overflowing with milk and honey, all of these, this precious provision given to them by God, and they have miscredited it to the Canaanite gods of, we'll, we'll meet him later, Baal Peor, and, and they've started to worship these false pagan gods with unspeakable deeds, and they've been crediting the goodness of God to this false god. But this is where we start to see that even in our joy and our delighting in the things that God has given, if we detach them or divorce them from the hand of God himself, this joy becomes an adulterous joy where we are taking and enjoying relationally some things that we're, where, we, where we ought not go. We see Israel is described as playing the horror, that, that God sees us as forsaking him, their true husband, and loving the wages of a prostitute. 
here the prostitute's wage, it's, it's symbolized of a false fulfillment, I would say, like a fleeting pleasure that the world provides. And it's described in this particular passage as wane and, grind, and, and wane, grain and wine and oil. And for us, it's other things. But it's harvest season in Israel, and the people are dancing and worshiping on the threshing floor. The harvest has come in, and they're looking at their bounty, and they are overflowing with the light, and God is nowhere to be found in any of the celebration and the worship. And so God starts to make clear that the very things that they have cherished, the threshing floor and the wine vat, are not going to feed them any longer, that the new wine is going to fail them, and that they are not going to be able to remain within the blessings of the promised land. As a result of their rebellion, what God has said is that the northern kingdom is going to fall they're going to return to a state of oppression and slavery due to their disobedience. So in verses 1 to 3, we just see a declarative judgment coming over Israel's grievous sin and rebelliousness against their God. And he's talking about the consequences of their spiritual unfaithfulness. And then as we move into verses 4 to 6, he starts to outline what those consequences are going to look like as we see declared over them exile and separation from God's house. What we see is that because of idolatry, God's anger is now kindled against Israel, and he's going to bring judgment and discipline and punishment. They are going to see the hand of his wrath, and they're going to see the lifting of his hand of protection. We read that their sacrifices and their joy and their feasts are not going to please him any longer, but will now only serve to intensify his anger. They're going to be alienated from the physical blessings of God and from his very holy presence in this chapter. And they're going to try to escape to other nations. As the destruction comes upon the Holy Land, they're going to flee to Assyria and to Egypt, lands that are unholy and unclean that have not been set apart by God and promised as the promised land. It reads like this, They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they're going away from destruction, but Egypt will gather them. Memphis will bury them. Nettles will possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents." What we see for the Israelite people is that their rejection of God is leading to alienation from his presence. They're not going to be able to pour out their drink offerings to him anymore or make any pleasing sacrifices to him anymore. Their rebellion has desecrated all of these sacred rituals, and it is meant that these, these acts that were meant to be worshipful, selfless expressions of love and service have now become selfish in nature where their acts will be like mourner's bread, where it will serve only to feed their own hunger, but it will have nothing to do with coming into the presence of God, is what he's saying here. And in that way, I think that we can see what we've been talking about, that the Lord is not merely interested in the repetition of a ritual, that you can do all of the things, but if it is not unto the Lord in a way that glorifies him, then it's just, it's just an act, and it's just to feed your own belly. And as a result, we're seeing that the appointed festivals and the feasts of the Lord are going to be removed from them. At these times that were usually joyous celebrations and times of unity for the people of God have now been turned to a cause for concern. 
God asks the rhetorical question, now what will you do on these days? Because given their apostasy, there's no room anymore for celebration on them. And then he looks at their escape. He says the Hebrews are going to seek to escape from the impending destruction on the land, but that their escape routes are going to lead them into the hands of Egypt and Memphis and other nations, that exile and captivity are coming for them. Being forced to move out of the promised land because of the destruction that he brings to the land is a divine punishment in and of itself, but we further read that nettles are going to possess their precious silver. This is a reference to like all of their material wealth which had brought them uh, so much joy and caused them to worship these other idols that they're being laid to waste. He says that thorns, which are a symbol of a curse in biblical language, are going to invade their very homes. What we see here is like the growing harshness of the consequences of turning away from and forsaking the one true God. They are alienated from his presence. Their joy is turning to dread, and it's ending in exile and loss. And each of these themes, as we move through these first six verses, they start to point our attention, I think, to Christ's atonement. We start to see that in Christ, this is where we can find our alienation exchanged for reconciliation. It's where we can see our dread exchanged for peace, and it's where we can see exile replaced with sonship and curse for blessing, we're going to need a major intervention if this is what it looks like to face the judgment of God for spiritual unfaithfulness. But we'll come back to that. First, let's get through verse 9. Hosea 7 through 9, 9, 7 through 9 starts to point out the failure of Israel's guides. We read, the days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come, Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, and yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They've deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gebeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. think that Hosea's message is coming to a climax in these verses. The day of divine punishment for Israel's rebellion has arrived. Hosea's been prophesying about what will come, and here Hosea is saying, it is here. The religious leaders that the people have turned to for guidance, we talked about it early on in the sermon series, that King Jeroboam had exiled all of the prophets that God had given and the priests that God had given, and he appointed his own prophets and his own priests. And so these are the men, the religious leaders that are being discussed in this passage. These religious leaders, they've turned to them for guidance, but uh, Hosea says that they are foolish and that they are crazed, and that this is a consequence of their deep-seated iniquity to turn to their own prophets. He says that the prophet who's supposed to be a watchman is seen as like caught up in a snare, like there's a conspiracy against God and his true revelation as given through the true prophet Hosea and his contemporaries. We talked a little bit about that. Like the Lord flooded the northern kingdom and, and Judah with true prophets during this time, calling out against the false prophets who were assuring them, soothsaying, telling them this is all God's favor upon you, saying no, God's favor is not upon you in your sin. Hosea refers to them as misguided, blinded by their own sin, leading others astray. 
instead of leading the people to repentance and to faithfulness, that they actually played a role in taking them into apostasy. No longer is Israel going to be able to ignore the consequences of their rebellion. The time of recompense has arrived. We see this when Hosea refers to the days of Gebeah. If you want to read more about that, you can write down Judges verses, or chapters 19 through 21 to see what the days of Gebeah were like. But it's meant to serve as a reminder of the consequences that are inevitable for unmatched corruption and sin in the sight of the Lord. Just as Gebeah had faced severe consequences for their sin, Hosea is saying, now too will Israel meet the deep consequences and wait and feel it of their iniquity. We're seeing the ruinous impact of corrupt spiritual leadership and the necessitated consequences of persistent sin. We see a coming punishment as a stern alarm for all of us who would turn a blind eye or ignore the weight of sin. It's a reminder that the Lord sees all in his justice and his holiness and his wrath are very real. And so I think this starts to turn our attention to what is the heart of my sermon this morning, which is that we need to come to see, firstly, Israel's punishment against the backdrop of Christ's punishment. And I think in order to build this sermon for you guys, um, there's kind of a, a track that I've tried to put together for you to help you see how it builds. What we see first is that inf Israel's infidelity needs to be seen as a reflection of humanity's, meaning your infidelity, your rebellion against God and his law. Remember back in Hosea chapters 1 through 3, we saw a scene set up of Hosea's marriage to the unfaithful Gomer. Remember this? And it was meant to be a symbolic representation, we said, of Israel's infidelity to God because God had a covenant with Israel and that covenant, he said, was akin to like a marriage covenant, a marriage relationship where Israel was expected by God to be fully faithful and devoted to him just as he was fully faithful and devoted to them, but they were not. In chasing after Canaan's grain and Canaan's wine and Canaan's oil and Canaan's wealth and all of their pagan gods, we see a parallel of the spiritual adultery that is committed by all of humanity in much the same way whenever we rebel against God and we chase after substitute idols and we replace his rightful place with them. In Israel, who was in this covenant relationship with God, when we see them straying to Canaan's offerings, and their unfaithfulness, and their idolatry, we need to let their actions mirror the rebellion and disobedience that lives within all of humanity's heart. They are not distinctly rebellious compared to you. Their rebellion was highlighted because God spoke a covenant over them. In setting them apart, all that was within mankind, which was also within them, became clear. He gave a, a mirror, a lens for us to see just how far the gap was between what our good God requires for right standing in relationship with him and where we really stand. Israel's rebellion shows us our rebellion. And so when we take them as an example, we see that mankind ever since the fall, church, has been in constant rebellion against God, all of us. We have pursued worldly pleasures, haven't we? We've pursued material wealth and self-fulfillment. We've done all the things. We've chased after all that the world has to offer, haven't we? 
often at the cost of forsaking our God and committing spiritual adultery, just like Israel, haven't we? It's a section, I think, that causes us to maybe just come to a full pause and come to this moment of introspection where we start to take an account here. As individuals, can you see Israel's predicament in you? Can you see it? Can you see that we have all gone the way of Israel? Can you see that you have allowed your hearts and your minds to chase after other gods, maybe not physical ones like Baal and Asheroth, but more subtle ones like wealth and and influence and the approval of others? We have to let the story of Israel's unfaithfulness be a reminder of our own tendencies to rebel and to falter and to worship idols. The beauty of the scriptures, including passages like Hosea, written to 8th century B.C., northern kingdom of Israel, under King Jeroboam II, that these scriptures are not just about them, but they are a mirror that show us something about us. And we must see, if we're like, where am I in this story? Guys, you were unfaithful Israel. That's where you see you. But we can't just, like, what good is it to stop there? We can't just see ourselves in the person of unfaithful Israel. We must come to see Christ as faithful Israel, the one who did not chase after false riches, but who fully surrendered himself and fully followed the Father's will. See, when we fast forward to the New Testament, that's where we meet Christ. That's where we meet Christ. He's often referred to as the true Israel. In contrast to Israel's rebellion, Christ perfectly obeyed the Father. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He perfectly accomplished all that Israel failed to accomplish. Christ, the true Israel, and all of the Gospels present Jesus as the true and better. Where Israel disobeyed and chased after Canaan's offerings, Jesus remained perfectly obedient to the Father's will. That's John 6, 38. He succeeded everywhere that Israel failed, and in him did Israel find their fulfillment and their perfection. I want to show you just a few places where we see that in, in Jesus. We see it in his perfect obedience. We see that while Israel was chasing after these things, dancing at the threshing floor, making a god of the wine and the grain and the oil and the wealth and the riches and the power and the might and all of this, that Christ chose the Father's will above all else. Do you remember in the earliest part of his, of his earthly ministry, after, right after he was baptized in the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit drives him out into the wilderness for 40 days where he is tempted by the prince of the power of the air, by the God of this world, by Satan himself, our enemy. And the chief temptation was that Satan pointed out at all the things that the world had to offer. And he, in essence, says to Jesus, all of this can be yours, and you don't have to pass through a cross to get it. Just bow to me. And Jesus surrenders himself instead to the will of the Father. Our champion said no to the trappings of the world where the worser Israel said, yes, give me all that the world has to offer apart from my God. His obedience, even unto his death, stands in contrast to Israel's rebellion and disobedience. His submission to God's will, even in his own suffering and temptation, shows his ultimate allegiance to the Father over any worldly offering. But it wasn't just within himself. He didn't just achieve that for himself. In doing that, Jesus, as the true and better Israelite, fulfilled the just demands of the law for the people of Israel. 
as the faithful Israel, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. That was Matthew 3.15. He perfectly adhered to all God's law. That's Matthew 5.17. So while Israel broke God's covenant and commands, Christ established a new covenant by his perfect obedience and righteousness. And this has so many implications for us because Christ is not just the true and better Israel in and of himself, but by your baptism in the Holy Spirit, by your union with Christ by faith alone, by you being called the new people of God, by being united with Christ by faith alone. Now all that is declared of Christ is declared of you, church. You are called the true and better Israel, not on account of your obedience, but on account of an alien obedience of this perfect Son of God on your behalf, so that the old self has been slain, put to death, so that it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. You have been indwelled by the perfect spirit of the risen Christ. Do you understand this? That in fulfilling all, all of the just demands of the law and then crediting it to you, that you can now be called the true and better Israel? It's huge. And this is how we can see that Christ, the true Israel, is a contrast to rebellious Israel while simultaneously being their hope for redemption. We have to come to see Christ as the example of perfect obedience in order to get a better understanding of the role of the gospel's richness in the grand narrative of Scripture, including here in Hosea chapter 9. But we can't stop at his life of righteousness because Jesus didn't just come and do all the things right because there was still a punishment that was due for those who did not do everything right. He also had to walk in the better punishment. And this is where we can see that Christ's punishment on the cross as an ultimate exile for his people bore the, God, the wrath of God and the separation that was due to us. In the gospel accounts, we start to see that Jesus, as the sinless one, subjected himself to the ultimate punishment, bearing the wrath of God on the cross and experiencing the full weight of divine abandonment. We see that in Matthew 27, 46. We see a parallel between the punishment of the exile that Israel has to endure here in chapter 9 to a weightier exile due to the sins of the whole world that Christ was to endure. We see him as the sinless one who bore our sins. He, being the perfectly obedient son of God, mercy's door was not deserving of any punishment. However, he, Jesus Christ, voluntarily became sin for you. Jesus became sin for you, willingly accepting the punishment that we deserve due to our rebellion and separation from God. But he wasn't just the sinless one who bore your sin. He also bore the wrath of God. Because on the cross, Jesus experienced the full weight of God's wrath against your sin. His cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew 27, shows that same despair and desolation experienced by Israel here in their exile. But it was yet greater. It was more extreme because of the divine nature of that exile. It was the ultimate exile. His death and separation from the Father was the ultimate example of the exile that is due to when we are rebellious against our God. Because there's a parallel with Israel's exile to Egypt and Assyria from Hosea 9, but it's so much greater in severity due to the divine nature of it. He was not, he was not exiled to Assyria. He was exiled to the tomb. He passed into death for you. 
He went into the place that was the ultimate consequence for sin, death itself, and he overcame it for you. That's how we see that in God's perfect plan, somehow this extreme act of punishment upon Jesus was also an extreme act of mercy. Christ, as our substitute exile, paid the penalty for our rebellion and exchanged our deserved punishment for his undeserved grace. Can you see it? And his punishment on the cross in this divine exile, we see demonstrated the severity of our sin. It shows us the problem. It shows us how big the problem is. We see God's just wrath. We can't look away from it. We can't skip past that. But then in, this, in the exact same time, it reveals to us his boundless grace and mercy, which is available to us in Christ Jesus. And if we really look at this, if we really understand this, if we really receive this, the depth of Christ's sacrifice and the justification that we have received through it, it's going to do some things. Christ on the cross is a supreme example of mercy as he took for us what we deserved. To understand God's mercy through Christ's punishment, we have to come to understand that there's a key difference between earthly consequences and God's eternal justice. One pales in comparison to the other. God's eternal justice is far greater than the earthly consequences that we might endure for our sin. In other words, Assyria pales in comparison to hell. You understand? It's, it's obedience in order to get back to the promised land doesn't really solve the root problem of original sin. Original sin threatens not just to cast us out of the promised land where we get a land flowing with milk and honey, but it threatens to cast us out of eternal life with our maker. The New Testament provides an understanding of God's mercy through the punishment that Christ endures on the cross. Every gospel account culminates with the crucifixion narrative, doesn't it? All four of them, the height of it is the crucifixion. Why? Because it emphasizes its centrality to the Christian understanding and faith. It's the moment of Jesus' ultimate suffering and seeming defeat where God's mercy is shining through most clearly. How can it be? It shows us the depth of God's mercy. It shows us his mercy amidst his wrath. It shows us his mercy as it leads to grace. And it shows us the personalization of his mercy for you, specifically for you. His mercy is depicted beautifully in the suffering and death of Christ because it shows us that his mercy is not merely a dismissive overlooking of sin, but it's a just dealing with it. As Christ endures our deserved punishment, we start to understand the depth of God's mercy, love that goes to the length of self-sacrifice. Do you see it? That the Lord sacrifices himself in order to appease his justice and and, uh, enable his mercy for you? to redeem the undeserving sinner like me? At the cross, we see God's wrath upon sin and his mercy towards sinners meet in the same moment. Jesus, personally sinless and yet bearing your sin, my sin, endured God's wrath for you, demonstrating God's justice while simultaneously God's mercy is shown to us because he chooses to punish the Son making a way for us to escape the justified wrath that we deserved. And if we really look at this, it leads us to grace. 
it must lead us to grace. Because of Christ's atonement as a substitute for you, God is able to be merciful to you without compromising his justice by extending grace, unmerited favor earned for you on the back of another. You were saved by grace. He's saved you from perishing and he has granted you eternal life. So if we take the time to compare what has been spoken here over Israel and their judgment and punishment and Christ's atonement, we're going to start to see forming in us some sense of appreciation of the magnitude of God's mercy toward us. Chapter 9 of Hosea is how it ought to be. And Christ on a cross is how it is. It rattles things. It disorients things. It shows us the way of grace. The weightiest price has been paid for your sins, not by you, but by Christ. If you understand this, then God's mercy will grow deeper within you as you acknowledge that you did nothing to earn it. You were supposed to, but you didn't. And yet you have mercy available to you. It changes things. It's a gift, and it's given to you through Christ. So if we see that it reveals to us the problem, our need for a Savior, and then it also shows us the solution, the Savior himself, it ought to motivate us then to live a grace-filled life as we come to understand how little that we did to receive it as we share this hope of mercy with others. As I continue to look at this first half of chapter 9 and I see all of the failures of Israel, I get to the point where I see that their spiritual leaders have failed, where their prophets have failed. And I come to see yet again that Jesus steps in to that part of the story too. That he is the ultimate and true prophet who where they misled, he carried us into God's mercy. All throughout the New Testament, I think that we see that Jesus is presented as the culmination of God's revelation to mankind. He is the final and perfect and ultimate prophet, according to Hebrews 1. He is superior to all the Old Testament prophets combined who served merely as foreshadowing to him. In Christ, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell bodily. He was the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. If the role of a prophet was to point you to the words and the character and the person of God, then the true and best prophet is Christ, the embodiment of our God incarnate, walking among us. So Hosea 9, 7, and 8 starts to lament the failure of Israel's guides and these so-called prophets and spiritual men, but not like them, Jesus comes as the final and ultimate guide, the epitome of spiritual leadership, and he perfectly reveals God and his will to us. That's John 14, 9. Unlike these failed prophets of Israel who misguide the people with their wrong interpretations, Jesus claims the reality of God's kingdom. Everything he speaks proceeds from the mouth of God. Everything he said in his earthly ministry proceeded from the Father. He is the way and the truth and the life. Every last word is worth hinging on, hanging your hat on. He spoke everything the Father commanded him, and he shepherded us into the truth. That's John 8, 28. And what he did in shepherding us into the truth is he bore witness to God's redemption plan. 
What he did is he showed us through his teaching and his life that God's mercy and redemption are available through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the ultimate act of God's mercy aimed at redeeming you from your sin and your death. It surpasses all of the deceptions of false prophets. It surpasses and banishes all the darkness of the earth, all the failure of the lesser Israel, all your failure. It overcomes it. He shines his light into that darkness and brings you into the light of life. That's John 8, 12. So if our faith rests not on these misguided soothsayers, but on the one Jesus Christ, it's entirely in him as our true prophet, we come to see that he is our ultimate guide. He's the one who leads us and carries us into the mercy of God. He is the one in whose teachings and in whose life and embodiment are all the sacrificial love required for your salvation. We don't look elsewhere. We don't accumulate for ourselves other teachings and other prophets who are teaching Contrary to what he said, we look to the words that proceeded from the Father through the mouth of Jesus Christ for all that we need to know to be made right with him. He is the true and better prophet. And if we recognize Jesus as this true prophet, it will lead us to humility and repentance and commitment to gospel-centered living because we will understand that what he has said is true. And so I've got no claim but grace. That's my only claim. In the knowledge of him, of his profound mercy available to us, we will walk in him. Not because he was some good model for us, because everything he showed to be, was to be true. And one of the things he said is that in ascending, he is going to send who? The helper to take up residence in the church that you now walk, not just by the model of Christ, but by the power of Christ. His person lives in you so that you walk by what he walked by. He bears witness to God's redemptive plan and leads us in his ways directly through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And when we contrast this against the teaching in Hosea and we look to Christ on a cross, we start to come into this deeper, like, marveling of God's mercy. It should have been this, but instead it was this. It should inform how we respond You think, surely he's got to be done, but I'm not. Because he didn't just live for you. He wasn't just the perfectly obedient and perfectly true prophet. He didn't just die for you. He rose for you. And in Christ's resurrection, we have a promise for all of us who believe that assures us of our eternal reconciliation with God. Forgive me for my voice failing me this morning. In Christ's resurrection, we have an assurance, an ultimate assurance that God's mercy and reconciled relationship with us is sustained into the future. Because listen, if you just, if I only gave you Hosea, or I only gave you some Old Testament scriptures, what you would see is a pattern. You would see that a people were rebellious and unfaithful and they came into judgment and exile and then there was restoration and then there, and then there was goodness and then it was a cycle and it would repeat over and over and over again. And so it isn't just what do I need to do to come out of the bad part of the cycle and enjoy a period of the good part of the cycle. It's how do I break the cycle? 
How can, I, how can I have eternal right standing and restored relationship with God? And this is where we turn to Christ's resurrection because it's in his resurrection that we see the culminating act that will render reconciliation with God complete and eternal, triumphing over all the temporary exiles that we read in the Old Testament and the destruction that Israel faces here in Hosea chapter 9. This church, the tomb is empty, is it not? It's empty. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it provides the hope and assurance that we need for eternal right standing with God. Death, which was our ultimate consequence for sin, much worse than exile to Assyria, much worse than slavery and Egypt. Death, spiritual death, eternal judgment upon our sin is the ultimate consequence of sin. And Jesus went into that place and came back from it. He didn't just show it that it was possible. He showed us that it is done, that it is finished, that sin has been defeated, that death has been defeated. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, church, is the same power that makes you alive in him. Christ's resurrection is proof of God's acceptance of Christ's sacrifice. If you would have left him dead, how can we know that the sacrifice was sufficient? But we know the sacrifice was pleasing to God because God rose him from the dead. He accepted his sacrifice on our behalf, and it points us to the complete reconciliation that we've received through our faith in Jesus. We who were once far off, exiled because of our sin, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen? That's Ephesians 2.13. And we have assurance of our eternal life in his resurrection. For all who believe in him, Paul said it in Romans 6, 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, and we sure have, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's in this promise that we have hope for eternal righteousness, eternal relationship, eternal restoration with the Father. In Christ's resurrection, we see God's mercy triumphing over his judgment. He's given us the eternal solution for our sin problem. Our faith in Jesus Christ is what has set us free from the bondage of sin and the penalty of spiritual death, offering us our restored relationship with God. And when we come to understand this link between Christ's resurrection and our reconciliation with the Father, it ought to strengthen you in your faith and encourage you to live out this hope-filled reconciliation in your daily walk with Jesus because it's a beacon of God's mercy in your life. It never moves. It's right there. It is there for you to rest in, to delight in, to sit under, to be restored in. It's, It's like... He, he takes our mourning and he turns it into dancing and he takes our sorrow and he turns it into joy. It's the total inversion of what we see in Hosea 9 where he takes them in their dancing and he takes them into mourning and he takes them in their joy and he leads them into sorrow. We see a great reversal because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if, in light of this, we, can't real, we have to come to realize that unlike Israel's judgment, which was temporal and conditional, that because of Christ, the mercy of God for us is eternal and unconditional, and it ought to evoke gratitude and worship and faith in Christ and Christ alone. In Hosea 9, 10 through 17, the back half of these verses, we see Israel's devastation over the outcome of not having a mediator standing in for them. We see them talked about in the terms of first fruits in verse 10 and then how it turned to vanity. If you could put up verse 10, we, see, we read, like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel, like the first fruit on the fig tree and its first season I saw your fathers. 
But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. This verse, it's a woeful acknowledgement by God about Israel's ultimate descent into idolatry. When he calls them first fruits, this imagery of Israel as grapes in the wilderness or as the first fruit of a fig tree, it's like symbolic of God's favor for them. It's like stumbling upon something delightfully unexpected. It's this beautiful picture, I think, and it shows Israel's privileged status with God. But then, like, right within the same sentence, we see that despite their favored status, that Israel turned to Baal Peor, and they start worshiping this Canaanite idol by all of these despicable, immoral acts that I won't name here, and they profane themselves to shame. And God is grieved by this betrayal, and what was once considered beloved is now called detestable. We see a fall from grace where Israel shows the severity of the punishment that meets their apostasy, and it shows the need for a Savior to stand in who will not stray from the Father's will. We see this progression from God's favored people to the fallen people. There's a cautionary lesson in there. The blessings that we have received by the Father, they require, they come with the burden of of a return of faithfulness that his faithfulness warrants faithfulness. And if I let you sit in that, then immediately what you're going to do, because we all can't help but do it, is say, oh my gosh, you're right. I need to be more faithful. And all that you're doing when you live there is you're putting yourself back into Hosea chapter 9, where at best you want to talk, work out a cycle where sometimes I have favor with God and sometimes I'm exiled by God based on the fact that I cannot return to him the measure of faithfulness that he has shown to me. You can't do it in the flesh. The return of faithfulness for the faithfulness that God pours out, it must be a perfect faithfulness. It must be a complete faithfulness. It must be utter faithfulness. It must be an alien faithfulness because you can't do it. It must be Christ's faithfulness and his faithfulness must be credited to you. And church, I tell you once and I'll tell you a thousand times that it is credited to you by faith alone. You do not contribute to it. You receive it as a free gift of grace. In verses 11 to 14, we move from that fall to grace to deeper into the punishment where we see that they who were once treasured have now become fallen without a future. We read Ephraim's glory is going to fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I'll bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I've seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, oh Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. What Hosea is doing here is he's foretelling of the glory of Israel that is going to vanish swiftly, just like that, like a bird. The blessings of fertility and offspring, these typical signs of divine favor in the ancient days are going to be taken away. It's an alarm to this culture where lineage and family and offspring are extremely valuable. And we see God's going to bereave them and their children until none are left. The traumatic warning of extreme loss that's attributable to their unfaithfulness. And then we see that 
the sorrow is connected to the loss, showing how deeply in God's seriousness and expectancy of that faithfulness that we talked about is when he's in relationship, in covenant relationship with his people. God foretells of Ephraim's doom. He describes it like being led out to slaughter, highlighting the severe danger that is coming for Israel's people in the future generations, not just on the current generation, but it's going to be an exile of decades, which means it's going to fall on the children and the children's children, and that's what we see in this prophecy. And then Hosea makes this desperate plea in, in verse 14, where he solicits God inter God's intervention to the extent that he asks for what? In verse 14, barrenness. A condition that was considered a curse in ancient times. He, he looks at all that the Lord has spoken for what is coming on account of the sin of the people. He looks at what they have brought upon themselves. He hears about being turned over to what has been described as, as a slaughter. We're going to be outside of the, of the promise and we're going to be outside of the presence of God. God is going to lift his hand of provision and protection from us. He's going to turn us over to the idols which we have so earnestly sought and it is going to bring to us destruction, just destruction, punishment that we deserve. And what can I ask for? What can I ask for? What would you grant? Well, that you would give them a miscarrying womb, that you'd make them barren. Let us not even bring children into this. It is a hopeless future. And it's only by looking closely at the severity of the punishment that's inflicted on Israel that we're going to start to get insight into God's justice and over unfaithfulness as it stands in contrast to his mercy and the love that we receive through Christ Jesus on the cross. It's a reminder of our need for grace and the significance of Christ's redemptive work for us. And again, I will hold out to you, as wretched as this is, it pales in comparison to eternal judgment and damnation in the place where moth and rust destroy in the place where the worm never dies in the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. We do well to look closely at it and to feel the weight of it that we might see the size of the problem that we might come to understand the size of the solution that is needed. There's no way you can look honestly with me at the weight of the wrath and judgment and holiness of God and honestly conclude that you can work your way out of it. Self-righteousness is a direct symptom of not looking at the problem. You're only thinking you can climb your way out of it because you just don't know God. You, don't, you haven't really looked at him. He requires perfect faithfulness because he's the perfectly faithful one. You're going to need another in verses 15 to 17, ending the text, we see the consequences of Israel land on this wretched thing. It's why my sermon this morning is all about the mercy of God in Jesus, is the last judgment is, in essence, the removal of his mercy. We see him express his anger in the severe consequences for sin. He says, all their evils at Gilgal, there I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I'll love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I'll put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they've not listened to him and they shall be wanderers among the nation. 
What we witness in God's rejection and these declarations are that from Gilgal, this place which used to be a place of covenant renewal, have preceded their evil deeds, showing us that his judgment is just and it is severe. And he is declaring that he's going to drive Israel out of his house, out of his presence, due to their wickedness. And, and he's talking about the exile that is coming for them, removing his hand of blessing and care. He's talked about lost love for them, about ceasing to prosper them, about dispersion among the nations, removal from this set-apart place that he had for them. We're talking about a declaration of the sins of Israel and impending exile that strongly emphasize the profound implications of our sin. It is that bad, is what I'm trying to say. And in light of the New Testament revelation, these harsh predictions of damning judgment for Israel serve to show us just how much more glorious the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. So I want us to see Israel's destruction in light of the church's redemption in order that we can understand how to respond to God's mercy. If we really look at the full testimony of these scriptures, then we see God's mercy is restored towards mankind through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Have you been able to see that this morning? That Christ responds perfectly where Israel has failed? Have you been able to see that this morning? that he's taken upon himself the punishment that we deserve, that they received in some measure, but not in full measure, that he's paved the way for our eternal reconciliation through his resurrection. Have you seen that this morning? Because we won't really understand God's mercy until we realize our, all of mankind's rebellious nature, how similar we are to Israel. We must acknowledge our sinful condition, mercy's door, our idolatrous tendencies. We must acknowledge it before God and with one another. We must recognize that it ought to result in a spiritual death that we deserve. But ultimately, what it serves to do is to drive our eyes onto Christ, the answer to our rebellion. His justice requires punishment for sin, but in God's mercy, he's provided the way out. In his mercy, God has sent Jesus as the final and perfect prophet, not just to speak the truth, but to carry us into the kingdom of God. Jesus is the new and true and better Israel, and he is the one who makes you the new and true and better Israel. It will be in Christ alone who walked perfectly where ancient Israel stumbled. God's mercy is demonstrated in Jesus himself as he absorbs the wrath that we deserve for our sin, as he provides a way for us to be reconciled with God, and as he expresses the mercy of the Father toward us at the cross. Our response ought to be, as recipients of this mercy, repentance and gratitude and faith and thanksgiving and life transformation. It's a realization that encourages us to live in light of the mercy that we've received in obedience and faith to the merciful one who has adopted us. We extend that grace and that mercy to others because his mercy has immeasurably exceeded the judgment that we deserved. We see that this rich mercy granted in Jesus Christ is accessible to all, and so we respond first in joy and delight in receiving it in repentance and in faith, and then we share it. We share it. Every week you need to hear me say, share it. It's why you're still here. It's why he didn't pluck you up right then and there upon your receipt of it, because it's not just for you. It's for them. 
You are now the church. You are the redeemed spiritual Israel living out the mercy that you have received. In light of the mercy that you have received, the scriptures from James 1.27, Micah 6.8, Matthew 5.7, Luke 6.36, they all emphasize for us the need for mercy in the church's relationships, the need for mercy in the church's interactions, the need for mercy in the church's attitudes, all to reflect the kingdom of God which we've been ransomed into. If we understand God's mercy, it would require us to first deeply understand the length to which Jesus went, the price that he paid for you on the cross. If you really get it, the magnitude of God's mercy in your life, it will transcend an intellectual or academic faith. Have we not been saying this? It must become more than agreeing with a set of facts. It's something that happens in you, new life placed within you. And then our response to this mercy should be one of surrender and gratitude as a natural outflowing of receiving this mercy. We faithfully live according to it, no longer trying to pursue acts of righteousness or trying to punish ourselves as if there was something insufficient with Christ's life for us or his death for us, but we forsake those lesser righteousness and we cling to this beacon of mercy, Christ crucified on our behalf and resurrected from the dead for our eternal life. If we really get that, then mercy in our life is not going to be an optional add-on for the Christian because it is central to the form of the core of your faith and your spiritual formation. It's part of the new life that has been put within you. You are now a people of mercy, living and walking by mercy. It means that you give forgiveness. It means that you give kindness. It means that you give understanding and patient endurance of unfair treatment, and you proactively seek the good of others, even those who have hurt you, because this is how mercy came into your life. And if we were each doing that, then together what it would do is it would cultivate a culture of mercy in the church. As a congregation, what we would see is that we were called to foster and nurture a merciful environment where we were building a community of mercy which involved collective dedication to fulfilling the merciful commands of Jesus. That it would be modeled in our fellowship with one another. It would be modeled in discipleship. It would be modeled in our worship and in our ministries. That we would be a people marked by mercy. If we really understand the mercy that God has shown to us in Christ Jesus, how it should have been this, but instead it's this, it will shape everything about us, our actions, our thoughts, our lives. This radical mercy that was extended to you will be a radical mercy that you extend to others, reflecting the heart of God that has been placed within you every day in your interactions, in your relationships, in your neighborhood, in Mascuda and on Scott Air Force Base, and with the brothers and sisters in this room with you. The message of mercy in the face of our rebellion, it penetrates all the pages of this story. It provides this, this beacon of hope that you can look to for all generations. It's the hope for your children and your children's children. It's the hope of the world. It's not just wishful thinking, but it is an assured expectation because it was achieved by the perfect, finished work of Jesus Christ. It's an eternal work. So if we reflect on Israel's story, and we see this pattern of judgment and mercy and restoration. We see in their narrative this understanding of our own propensity to sin, of the world's propensity to sin, and the deserved judgment that we have not received because of the grace of our Lord. 
we'll see his mercy and it will cause us to realize that in that mercy that we get to shift from distant observers of his interactions with Israel's story to recipients of that very mercy ourselves. Have you received it? If we've experienced it, it leads us to repent and to believe and to live out the gospel in our lives. We're given an enduring hope, not just for eternal life for later. This is my struggle to think that all the benefits are, are, are in the future. But in our daily struggles with sin, we've been indwelled by the spirit of mercy to cover our sin and to give us power to war with it. God's enduring mercy gives us continual hope and strength. He ministers it over us daily as we, like Israel, are so prone in the flesh to wander away from him. The grace of Christ is applied to you day by day to sustain you in the mercy that you've received once and for all. But it's not just for you. Can you hear me in this? It's not just for you. It's not for you to sit in. As believers who have experienced God's mercy and live in the hope of those promises, we are then called to be agents of that mercy, to be agents of that hope. In a world that is often hopeless, we must point others to the hope that is found only in Christ. And that's how we'll become a church that is rooted in mercy, a community whose foundation is deeply rooted in the enduring hope of God's mercy that we've each received it will become manifest in the way that we live by the gospel message, by the way we encourage one another in gospel growth, the way that we serve our communities in Muscoota and Scott Air Force Base through tangible acts of mercy. We will surrender and rejoice and persevere in the faith all by the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus working it out in us. We will be commissioned as bearers of this hope and mercy for the world around us as they journey toward this hope that we've received. In conclusion, if we look at the prophecy of Hosea in chapter 9, if we look at the liberating message of the New Testament, we see a portrait of God's mercy being magnified by his justice. Looking honestly at who he is and what he requires and your inability to meet those just requirements will make you cry out for mercy. But it's not enough just to know you need it. He has shown, it where it, has shown us where it can be found. And it's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. From Israel's infidelity and rebellion to God's mercy embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ in the expectancy of your enduring hope, mercy's door. We look at the layers upon layers of God's mercy for us, intricate and immeasurable and unending. We see how in Israel's punishment that Hosea is echoing our condition, that we are a humanity who has been marred by sin, deserving of wrath and bound for disaster if left to our own devices. But what we've seen is that God's unfathomable mercy has led him to offer our rescue and our renewal in Jesus Christ alone. Christ is the true and better Israel. He does not lead us into idolatry and rebellion. He leads us and carries us faithfully back to our God and shoulders our punishment and displays God's mercy for us and offers us the enduring hope of our restoration with God by his resurrection. 
if we respond to this revelation of God's mercy, if we respond to this mercy indwelling within us, our hearts are then stirred toward a profound gratitude and a humble repentance that embodies this mercy for others. So I need to ask you, do you recognize the mercy of God in your life? Can you see it? Do you understand how far he reached to ransom you? Have you received his mercy? Have you been transformed by it? When Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, what I see is Jesus declaring that it's impossible to receive this mercy that I've been preaching about this morning and not display it? Is there evidence of mercy in your life? Do you understand the mercy you've been received? Or have you gotten what you deserve in your mind? And you think other people should get what they deserve too? You received mercy Are you extending it to those around you? Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice. The world is thirsty for the mercy of God. Are you speaking the words of your Savior, the merciful ministry of the gospel account, in order that the one that has left the 99 would be brought in? Are you gathering lost sheep in your ministry of mercy on this earth? It's why you're here. We need to bathe in the mercy of God displayed in the gospel of Christ in order that it would overflow onto the dry and weary souls in our neighborhoods. We need to celebrate God's mercy. I want to see more smiles among you. You celebrate God's mercy. You need to accept it. You need to relish in it. You need to pass it on. You need to do it all to the praise of his glory. It should have been this, but it was this. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So this isn't just a historical concept. It's a living and vibrant truth in the spirit of Christ and it ought to transform how we live and it ought to transform how we interact. It ought to transform how we see the world around us. If within this mercy we find our hope and we find our joy and we find our peace and we find our purpose, if as believers we're not just recipients of the mercy but we're conduits of that mercy for the thirsting world around us that's looking for grace and for love and we are responding with, with joyful news of God's mercy, things ought to change, right? Have they changed for you? For those of you who have yet to experience the depth of God's mercy, the invitation stands open to you. Mercy's door is open to you. 
confess your sins and your need for a Savior. Repent and turn toward Jesus Christ, the true prophet, the true and better Israel, the sinless lamb who took on the punishment that you deserved for your sin. Trust in Christ's sufficiency and his righteousness and his righteousness alone for your right standing with God. Embrace that mercy and grace that he alone offers and experience the joyous freedom that comes with being a child of God and then walk in it. And if you've been walking in it, for those of you who have been walking with Christ, let looking at this type of thing serve as a fresh reminder for you of God's mercy toward you. Let it renew you in humility. Let it renew you in the knowledge that you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let this understanding of God's mercy in your life deepen your faith and empower your walk in your spiritual life to embody this mercy for others. We need to remember that we bear witness to the greatest testimony of mercy that the world has ever known. And so we walk it out in the gospel truth, not just with our words, but with our actions. We must love the unlovable and forgive the seemingly unforgivable and forgive those who have wronged us even, comforting the brokenhearted and bringing hope to those who are in despair. We must extend the mercy that we've received and bear witness to the gospel that something has changed, that this is what sets us apart. Let us build a community that is rooted on that shared mercy. I want it, guys. I want it for us. I want to be a distinct people in this city marked by mercy, a mercy which does not accuse, but, by, but that forgives, a mercy that does not condemn, but that liberates that we would mirror the heart of God, a heart that is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy, that we would live as ambassadors of God to this mercy, pointing people to Christ Jesus and spreading hope in despair, spreading light in darkness, all for the glory of his kingdom. Amen. Let's pray.